0: Lives of the Unconscious A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy Episode 34 Dissociative Identity Disorder Secret Lives Split Personalities A beloved theme in art, literature and film that fascinates us as much as it haunts us. Perhaps because it speaks to a deep, primal fear in human beings, that of a dark, unseen side that dwells in each one of us, developing a life of its own against our will, or even our knowledge. Inside each of us lives someone else as in Robert Stevenson's famous novel The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll, a good-natured doctor. Mr. Hyde, a destructive, even murderous figure, who at night wreaks havoc. And what is so frightening is that they are one and the same person. Or, to be more precise, in one body live two identities, that know nothing of one another. The idea of split personality is fertile ground for stories of great imagination, while regrettably also inspiring and perpetuating numerous misunderstandings that continue to cling to the kind of personality organization that we will take up in this episode. The Dissociative Identity Disorder Hereafter, abbreviated to DIS. As we will soon hear, it is in no way a battle between good and evil. DIS is both an old and a young diagnosis. It has only recently been introduced into standard diagnostic manuals, such as the DSM and the ICD, and is sometimes still called multiple personality a now-obsolete designation. Accounts describing the phenomena of dissociative identity have existed for centuries. Scientific documentation dates back to the beginning of modern psychiatry, to the famous French psychiatrist Pierre Janet, as well as to the beginnings of psychoanalysis. In the first case of psychoanalytic treatment, the patient, known as Anna O., most likely suffered from this so-called double conscience, as DIS was known in French psychiatry at the time. To this day, the afflicted doctors and therapists of various schools report similar phenomena, and by now there exists well-established diagnostic procedures. The existence of DIS has been clearly established scientifically and has also been the subject of neurobiological research. Still, the professional community sometimes has difficulties with this diagnosis, presumably because there is something about the phenomenon that rattles the basic convictions we have of ourselves as human beings, something that is simply difficult to believe which is all the worse for those affected, when there is no one else who believes. One common prejudice, for example, is that the experience of DIS is actually the invention of the therapist, who talks their patients into believing such things, thereby creating so-called false memories. This is one prejudice, however. That has no scientific support. As the researcher Constance Steinberg and her colleagues have stressed in their famous review of almost 1,500 empirical studies on dissociative phenomena and DIS, quite the contrary, they argue. The disorder is more likely being overlooked. This is despite the fact that estimates suggest it affects about 0.5% of the general population, and up to 5% of those in psychiatric settings. In other words, the disorder is not much rarer than, say, schizophrenia. Nonetheless, patients with DIS are still being diagnosed as suffering primarily from some other disorder. Most frequently, Borderline Personality Disorder, Schizophrenic Disorders, or Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. So what exactly is DIS, anyway? The remarkable thing about this disorder is that those affected are often not even aware of it at first, or are unable to understand its manifestations. Initially, they may only recognize their inability to cope with everyday life, and, beyond that, some very strange, inexplicable phenomena about their experience. For example, there is often a sense that something isn't quite right with the order of time. They continuously forget, or screw up, appointments, without being able to reconstruct exactly how. Parts of the day, or activities, seem to fly by with such remarkable speed without any memory of what really happened. In more extreme cases, the continuum of time breaks down entirely. For example, the person leaves the house in the morning for work, gets on the subway, and then suddenly the evening has arrived, and they are standing in front of the stove cooking. Or they suddenly find themselves in a totally unfamiliar street, and only after some effort and investigation, are able to determine that three days had in fact passed. These problems with memory apply not only to the present, but also to the past. Often, childhood memories, in particular, are only fragmentary, or may not even be available at all. Sufferers may also come into frequent conflict with those around them, may antagonise others without recognising what about them is so alienating. Sometimes they have absolutely no recollection of things that others attribute to them, as if they weren't even involved, such as when they don't have the foggiest memory of being at a party where they met someone. Quite often, they become very withdrawn, may not get involved in longer-term intimate relationships. They also often have the feeling of being the subject of strange occurrences, such as finding objects in their room that they never bought, or finding notes or diary entries in handwriting that is not their own. Or they behave in a way that they find inexplicable and strange, such as harming themselves without being able to explain how. However, most people don't seek out therapy because of these curious incidents, so much as because of some of the difficulties that they entail. People often describe symptoms that are typically evident in other disorders as well, such as compulsive behaviour, hearing voices, the experience of being influenced by outside forces, severe anxiety, and panic attacks, or powerful nightmares, just to name a few. While these strange occurrences and states of mind demonstrate how broad the spectrum of dissociative phenomena can be, dissociative symptoms are not a sufficient precondition for DIS, although a necessary one. Dissociation comes from Latin, and means to separate, to divide. In the realm of the psychological, this refers to basic mental functions, such as memory, feeling, or thinking. We normally live in a state of psychological integration. This applies, for example, to our experience of time, in which our world is structured by a continuum including a before, an after, and right in between, a now. Our experience of the body is also ordinarily integrated. I feel that this arm is mine, that I can move it, unlike the feeling that one's own body is foreign, such as during local anaesthesia which is highly irritating and unpleasant. Even our experience of identity is based on an integrated continuum. There is a stable core to our ego that persists through all kinds of situations. Even if I behave and feel quite differently towards my boss, may even adopt a different tone of voice than I do with my best friend, I still feel ultimately that I am one and the same person. My memory and sense of self hold these different roles and facets of my identity together as one. However, there are also some circumstances in normal life when this experience of continuity disintegrates. Although here, one would not speak of dissociation in the narrow sense. For example, in dreams or daydreams, we are not entirely there. We are so occupied with our inner world that we hardly perceive anything outside. Or when we get into a flow, when time flies by, we are enthusiastically engaged in an activity. We can get closer to the clinical conception of dissociation if we think of the psychological states that accompany strong fear. For example, witnesses to frightening events often describe having perceived the whole experience as if it were unreal, as if having been in a state of derealization, which can even last for hours or days. It is known from the psychology of trauma that some events not only bring the experience of continuity to its limits, but can even tear it apart. There is, for example, the phenomenon of accident victims wandering around for hours after the shocking incident, even if they are not severely injured physically and then finally regaining consciousness in some other place, without remembering what happened or where they are. This is also referred to as a dissociative amnesia or fugue, a dissociative flight response. The psychology of DIS is also centred around the psychology of trauma, and although there are overlaps, there are important aspects that distinguish it from post-traumatic stress disorder. People with post-traumatic stress disorder can also experience dissociative states, such as drifting off, becoming unresponsive, or experiencing a completely different inner reality, and suddenly being thrown back into the middle of the trauma, as if no time had passed. This is usually brought on by what are called triggers, that is, stimuli that establish an unconscious connection to the traumatic situation. In the case of a DIS, the degree to which individuals dissociate their experiences is in some respects even more severe. Here, one also speaks of a structural dissociation. This involves a fundamental disintegration of the ego or rather a fundamental inability to form certain connections. This is either because trauma fragmented certain domains of experience or because the traumatic event foreclosed from the onset the very possibility of forming a connected whole. One or more parts of the self are then separate or split off. What is characteristic of DIS is that these parts develop a life of their own. Each of them forms an individual identity with its own history. Distinct structural systems, identities and ways of experiencing manifest themselves separately in the same body. This, then, is also reflected in the neuronal networks of the brain. As we will hear in a moment, massive traumatizations during the sensitive stages of brain and ego development normally play an essential role in this process. And how should this be understood? Contrary to the widely held belief, it is not the case that the person constantly adopts a different personality that is noticeable to others. This can indeed be the case, but most of the time it is more subtle. Others may notice, at best, that the person suddenly appears especially childlike or dismissive. With DIS, one also speaks frequently of a disorder of hiddenness. The entire organisation of the psyche serves to ensure psychological survival, and more or less normal contact with the outside world by splitting off isolating and avoiding certain traumatic experiences within oneself as we heard in episodes 34 to 36 trauma moves into the psychic structure of the victim takes root there and remains ever present in some part of the self It is precisely because it cannot be worked through, cannot be mourned, that it cannot become a thing of the past. The trauma is insulated from consciousness, by means of the mechanism of splitting. On a conscious level, the person can thus function in everyday life without being constantly overwhelmed by unbearable feelings. However. Triggers can bring about a connection to the traumatic experience. Such triggers can lead to flashbacks, especially in the case of post-traumatic stress disorder. As we just mentioned, the person experiences the trauma as directly present, feels as if the traumatic experience were happening all over again. Individuals with DIS may also experience flashbacks and show symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. However, triggers can also be points at which an involuntary change of identity takes place. If the change of identity is linked to a flashback, it may happen that the person is suddenly a little child again, who has been horrifically abused, cries and hides unaware that he or she is in fact a different person now, decades later. Or this change of identity may be somewhat less emotionally upsetting. Take the example from earlier. We described person A, who takes the subway to work, then is standing in front of the stove cooking. It may be that work and the subway ride are stressful thus representing a negative trigger. But we left someone out of our earlier example, identity B. She is the one who remained conscious in the subway, as it were. One could also say that she is the one who stepped forward, dealt with work, did the shopping, and then went home again, at which point another trigger We'll call it the Secure Private Apartment Trigger, for indeed, there are also positive triggers. Brought Person A forward again, who now cooks and organises free time. The remarkable thing is that Identity B experiences these events as inverted. Identity B works and goes home. Then there is a tear and she is back at work. But the transitions are not normally so abrupt or evident, for the dissociation is seldom experienced as some inexplicable rupture in experience, either because some sort of co-consciousness or half-consciousness was there all along, or because what transpired was very well rehearsed, unfolded as if on autopilot. In order to detect ruptures in the continuum of time, there must be an inner idea of this continuum. In other words, a unified overarching identity, which is precisely what is lacking. The inner experience of this process largely takes place in a completely normal and everyday way. Moreover, it very much depends on whether the change of identity occurs as part of the rhythm of everyday life or is triggered by some unpredictable factor. Often, there is a central identity, the so-called host, who serves the role of overarching integrator, as it were. It should be stated that these are extremely simplified examples, illustrating only a small slice of a much more complex reality. The inner experience of DIS, and how the identities are formed, is as individual as the person's life story. Nevertheless, we will try to describe at least some common characteristics and peculiarities. One common prejudice is that two identities are formed, one that is functional, while another that is somehow linked to the trauma one that is white, and one that is dark, as it were. In reality, however, each identity stands independently on its own. The experiences, memories, and character traits of each identity are complex and multifaceted, just like any other human being. In fact, often more than two identities form, One also describes it in terms of a system, compromising as many as three, six, maybe even twenty or more identities. Here, too, each identity has its own memory, preferences, behaviours, and perceives itself and its surroundings in its own way. This can even mean that the aspects of identity that appear biologically determined can vary from one identity to the next. For example, hand preference, vision, hearing, cognition, or language. Body posture, facial expressions, voice, or handwriting can also vary. The identities may subjectively perceive themselves as belonging to a different age group or gender, sometimes even a different species, such as an animal. Often these identities form an elaborate system to maintain psychological equilibrium, which, however fragile, enables the person to cope with everyday life in a somewhat normal way. At the same time, specific identities may serve to accomplish specific tasks or functions. There are, for example, identities that take on academic or professional tasks, and others that organise everyday life, go shopping, take care of personal hygiene. There are identities that recall the trauma and remain captive to the traumatic event, and others that know nothing at all about the trauma and can therefore freely express themselves without any individual constraints, go out partying, live out their sexuality, There are identities that identify with the perpetrator, inflict violence on themselves, manipulate the self, or are quick to react suspiciously or angrily to others. Often, there is a long period of time in which these different states of mind are only experienced as diffuse and disorganized. This can depend, among other things, on how well-developed the amnesic barrier between the identities is, for example, how aware the identities are of one another. Not all identities have to be completely split off from one another. It may be, for example, that two identities are aware of one another and are in communication with each other, while a third identity is not even aware of the other two. Some people report that they experience a kind of spatial inner world where the identities reside, for example as a room in which all identities live, or even as a whole house with many rooms and a garden in which the different identities make up a family. So, how does DIS develop? The scientific community differs on this question. It is not entirely clear why one person develops borderline, another a schizophrenic disorder, and yet another a complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or DIS. However, DIS invariably stems from early trauma. Those affected report that their first episodes of dissociative identity were in early childhood. We know from studies that the trajectory of DIS is charted in the first six years of life. In other words, during a developmental phase in which there is still a high degree of neuroplasticity, the basic functions of the ego, such as thinking, reality control, attention control, and the associated neural networks, are still in the process of development and only take shape through interaction with environmental experience. This means that traumatic experiences in this early developmental phase imprint themselves in a particular way on the development of the ego and the underlying neural structures. From a psychoanalytical point of view, every personality organisation is not ultimately a disease or disorder, but rather always an adequate adaptation to a specific environment. Hence, one must inquire into the early relationships or the early social environment of a child in order to understand the history of how their DIS developed. Special attention has thus been paid in research to the significance of ritual violence. Ritual violence refers here to forms of violence that are practised and institutionalised in a systematic way, as is the case of some criminal organisations, such as human trafficking or child pornography networks. Here, the violence is part of an insidious system. However, DIS does not only arise in criminal organisations. It can also occur in highly pathological family structures. The decisive factor is that the traumatic violence directed against children takes place on a regular basis and is, as it were, split off from a separate reality. It is quite possible that the child is periodically treated with care by the parents or others around them, and that there is some sense of normality where they feel at home such as whenever the child goes to kindergarten. Yet, at a certain time, at a certain place, the child is systematically abused, made completely powerless, overwhelmed with terror and violence. For example, over and over, in a specific room. Or, for example, always in the morning, once the father has gone to work, and the mother becomes someone completely different, tortures the child sadistically, inflicts sexual violence on them, and then in the afternoon, once the father is back home, some semblance of normality returns. The child has to find an answer to the fact that in certain situations, it has to function in a particular way. In the traumatic situation, it must submit to what is happening, perhaps even cooperate in a certain way, so as not to make it worse. And after the trauma, it must resume normal functioning, which includes concealing what has happened, keeping it a secret. Early traumatizations impact the child's psyche at a stage where it is not yet able to internally contextualize certain events on its own, to integrate them into the totality of a stable experience of self, without the support of another person. If aspects of reality are violently torn apart, and the child is subjected to a dissociated reality, then he or she will not be able to bring these two realities together into a coherent inner experience. For every dual consciousness, there is also a dual reality. The mode by which the adults address the child is split, meaning the child's experience of relationships forces upon them a violent split, as they are sometimes the subject of sadism, sometimes a normal child just playing. This is often the point at which identity first becomes split internally, from which there emerges further complex patterns of self-organization and psychological defense. The first identity splits are formed through trauma, and DIS is ultimately an attempt to overcome a chronically traumatizing situation. Not only does the perpetrator play a central role in this development, but others in the child's environment do as well. In our example, it would be crucial whether the father, or say a kindergarten teacher, or the grandparents, notices that something is wrong. They might say, it's odd. The child is somehow always different mornings during the week when you two are alone. In other words, these individuals begin to make connections between the separate realities. There is something from the traumatic situation that remains evident in the other reality, as in, when the child is particularly silent or withdrawn. A has something to do with B, even when the links are not yet intelligible. If those individuals notice something, if they try to find out more, then something will ultimately be done and the child will be removed from the traumatising situation. In this way, they are serving the function of integration, of reconnecting the different states. And if this occurs early enough, if the child is not subjected to the trauma for too long, then it is possible that the different aspects of identity can be reintegrated again. This, by the way, is precisely the work of psychotherapy, especially in the case of DIS, although also with some other disorders. What this involves is trying to establish connections and associations between the different realities, and this usually requires years of careful work. However, in many cases nobody notices what's happening, either because they are personally involved, or because they are unable to believe it, or simply don't want to. Or the process of splitting has already progressed so far that the child can function in certain situations in an almost perfectly normal way without letting on at all. In that case, it can be very difficult for anyone in kindergarten or later in school to draw the connections. Nevertheless, it must be stated that disavowing the enormity of the situation often does play a role here. For even when observers may have no idea of the implications, there is almost always something conspicuous something strange or peculiar in evidence. But it can also be very difficult to get to the root of the situation, as this often involves complex family systems that are particularly well-suited at warding off any kind of outside intervention at all. Indeed, this can be even worse when, for example, the person eventually seeks therapeutic help, and still nobody is willing to believe the unbelievable. Moreover, traumatic violence in the family or in organised crime need not be the only cause. Medical interventions that were particularly life-threatening or extremely invasive have also been described by some as having contributed to their DIS, or, for example, tragic and reoccurring experiences in the hospital, as in the case of leukaemia at an early age, whereby it again depends strongly on how others deal with it. For example, even the work of simply looking, empathising and understanding may entail great, perhaps even unbearable pain. Often it is only through intensive examination and a lengthy process that an individual is even able to become aware of their system of identities, understand its various functions, and be able to communicate this to others. Often DIS only first becomes obvious in the course of therapy. Not, however, because of what the therapist persuades the patient of, as has unfortunately been falsely suggested time and again. Rather, It is the case that therapy raises sensitive issues, and thus often leads, sooner or later, to a shift in identity. The avoidance system that the person has spent a lifetime maintaining becomes fragile, internally and externally. It is then someone else who consciously notices this change of identity, maybe even for the first time. It may happen, for example, that the patient is destabilised by a difficult topic in therapy and all of a sudden dissociates. And while the patient has the feeling that he or she was simply absent for some period of time, the therapist observes how they suddenly begin behaving like a child, crying, for example, reacting with great irritation or speaking in a childlike voice. Or they become someone quite strict and dismissive, someone who suddenly has very different character traits. Therapists need a detailed knowledge of the disorder and also an understanding of the protective function that the changes in identity offer. Therapists who are not familiar with the defence mechanisms and structures of DIS can be rather confused at first, may doubt their own perception, or, in the worst case, may not even believe the patient. After all, there are many things that the patient will not be able to recognise about themselves at first, which from the outside may appear quite strange to those with a coherent concept of self. How can it be that the person cannot remember speaking like a toddler only five minutes ago, or making cheeky comments, although they're normally so shy. However, the self-conception of someone with DIS consists specifically in the fact that it is dissociated. Dissociation is a means of survival, and this is why it is often vehemently maintained, why no connections can be made. To put it paradoxically, Maintaining the psychological split enables the person to achieve psychological cohesion. For this reason, individuals with DIS are dependent on the perception of others, on someone who can identify two separate states, as such, and form a connection. For example, in that the therapist continuously mirrors the patient. During the time you felt you were zoning out, you presented yourself to me as a small child who was terribly scared. One goal of therapy with DIS patients is strengthening the person's integrative capacities. For this, there are specific therapeutic approaches, such as a method called ego state therapy, the various elements of which can also be integrated into other procedures by a trained therapist, such as modified analytic psychotherapy. Complete integration in which the separate identities can consolidate into a single identity is in some cases successful. However, for many this is extremely difficult, and some sufferers may not even want it to happen. As a general rule, the more parts a person has, the more difficult and complex the process of integration. It is, indeed, quite possible for many to form a relatively well-functioning system of identities in order to strengthen integrative abilities. It is therefore necessary to work on mutual communication within the system. For the more the person becomes aware of his or her system of identities, The better the identities are able to work and interact together, the more likely it is that the person will be able to maintain some control over his or her life, such as when the person learns how to detect the signs of so-called switches or identity changes, and eventually also how to actively prevent or evoke them. Understanding who one is and finding a way to live with that person without fear, even if there are many of them, will not alter the traumatic past, but it can involve some measure of healing. This podcast was written and produced by Cecilia Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleyman Lawrence, and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.